Well, let me take back in time. It was July 9th, 1941. World War II was in full fling, raging across Europe and North Africa. Within a matter of just a few months, the U.S. would be drawn into this conflict when Japan attacked the U.S. naval fleet at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. On that particular day in July, the 9th of July, two Oxford University scientists left England to travel to the U.S. And in their possession was a very small but highly valuable package. Their mission was to work with U.S. scientists on developing an economical means for mass-producing the contents of that small package. In 1928, Sir Alexander Fleming observed the bacteria-killing properties of a particular mold, which he named penicillin. Penicillin. It was highly effective but slow and expensive to reproduce, and thus of very limited battlefield value. But amazingly, by November the 26th, 1941, that team of scientists had figured out how to increase the yields tenfold, and penicillin production quickly geared up. It grew to the point where the Allied soldiers wounded on D-Day were able to be treated with this new wonder drug. And many survived, whereas in the past they would not. Today, there is a wide variety of antibiotics available, right? And they are available to both save and improve the lives of millions and millions of people worldwide. Last week, we spent time looking at a deadly disease, deadly disease called pride. We noted its symptoms, and we noted its effects upon both our lives individually and upon the health of this church. This week, we turn from the disease to the cure. We turn our attention to humility, the antidote to pride. Beloved, pride is like bad breath. Everyone else knows when you have it, even if you do not. Even if you do not. We are not humble people. We are not humble people. We are proud people. We are very proud people, and therefore we must constantly be attacking the sin of pride, putting off pride and replacing it with the virtue of humility. This morning, I want to encourage us in this fight. I want to encourage us in the fight by by briefly asking and answering three questions about humility. So that we might be reinvigorated in our pursuit of this essential virtue. 
So it's a question and answer format again this morning. We will not exhaust this topic. It is vast. It is woven throughout the scriptures. There's no way we're going to exhaust it this morning in this little time we have together. But there will certainly be enough here to keep us busy, probably for a lifetime. Probably for a lifetime. So let's get at it. Question number one, what is humility? If it is the antidote to pride, what is it? What is humility? Humility is a focus on God. It is a focus on God that motivates us to intentionally lay aside legitimate expressions of power and authority in order to promote God's glory and serve others. I'll repeat it for you. Humility is a focus on God that motivates us to intentionally, notice that word, intentionally lay aside legitimate expressions of power and authority. Those are key words. Intentionally lay aside legitimate expressions of power and authority in order to promote God's glory and serve others. You get that? It is to surrender something that is legitimately ours. It is to give it up. And it is to give it up for a higher and more noble purpose. This is what humility is. Humility is displayed in many, many places and ways in the scriptures. And, and let me just take you to a few. Let me turn you to uh, Genesis chapter 13 first. As you will see, this definition of humility worked out. Genesis chapter 13, and we're going to pick it up in verse 8. Now, the background here in Genesis 13 is that Abram and his wife Sarai and, and their belongings, along with his nephew Lot, are in the land of Canaan. And their flocks and their herds have grown to the place where there is, there is some, some tension between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abraham over the limited grazing and water rights that are available. And so, verse 8, So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers." Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Chapter 12 of Genesis 
introduces us to the Abrahamic covenant. God called Abraham from Ur the Chaldees and said, I will take you to a land that I will show you and I will give you this land and I will make your descendants great. And Abram, or later Abraham, takes along his nephew Lot. Lot is lucky to go along. The covenant is with his uncle Abraham, not with him. And yet there, when they get in the land, and and there's not enough space for all of their herds, notice how Abram, or Abraham, responds. It is his legitimate right to choose the best of the lands, and yet he yields that right. He yields that right to his nephew. Abraham was a humble man, a humble man. And he lived in dependence upon the Lord his God. We have another example of a humble man in Scripture. For that, I will take you to Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3. Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3. An amazing statement here. Numbers 12 and verse 3. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. I want you to think with me for a moment about Moses. And in particular, I want you to think about Moses' sons. I want you to think about his sons. Moses is the great deliverer of the nation of Israel. He is the lawgiver. He is the one who goes up onto the mountain and has that audience with God. He is the one whom God displays his favor upon by, by, by passing before him, right? And sheltering him in the cleft of the rock and speaking his name to him and revealing his character to Moses. Moses is the pinnacle of the leadership of the nation. And what about his kids? What about Moses' sons? They get no place. They get nothing. His brother Aaron is chosen as high priest. Aaron's sons become the high priests of the nation of Israel. All of that honor and glory, as it were, is is given to his brother Aaron and to his sons after him. But to Moses' sons, nothing. Nothing. Dads? Can you imagine what that would be like to have all of this power, all of this authority in you and realize that none of it is going to go to your children, that your sons will get nothing and your brother's sons get it. Moses was a humble man. He was a humble man. He did not grasp after that which any normal man would grasp after. Moses was a humble man. We go to the New Testament. And I take you to Luke chapter 3. Luke 3. And verse 16. Luke 3 and verse 16. John the Baptist, 
Among those born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist, Jesus says. John had this this amazing and special call of God to be a prophet to the nation of Israel. He is the one who went out preaching the baptism of repentance and the nations flooded to him to be baptized by him in the Jordan River and the disciples began to accumulate around him. And this man had something going. And yet, when the Messiah comes, John willingly turns it all over. His entire ministry, he turns it all over to the Messiah. And they ask him, they say, are you Messiah? Are you the deliverer? And he answers, verse 16, and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John says, he must, I must decrease and he must what? Increase. And John moves off the stage of history, willingly turning over his disciples to Jesus. John was a humble man. A little further in the right of the New Testament to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. Another humble man. The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy here, he says, Timothy, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Among whom I am foremost of all. The Apostle Paul never lost sight of the fact That God had saved him. That Christ had saved him. That he who he says in verse 13 was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor was shown mercy by God. Paul never got over that. And it humbled him. And, And he who was the one who was establishing the Gentile mission, who was taking the gospel to the, to the extent of the Roman Empire and, and, and leading people to Christ and planting churches and, and writing the word of God, this man was a humble man. He never lost sight of that amazing reality that Christ had saved him. That Christ had saved him. We see the display of humility, this putting aside of legitimate power and position, most clearly in the Lord Jesus Christ. Take you to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Where Paul writes to the church at Philippi, Beginning in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. Jesus is the ultimate example of humility. The ultimate example of one who who voluntarily laid aside all legitimate expressions of power and authority for the purpose of glorifying God and serving others. In John's Gospel, chapter 13, we get another glimpse into the humility of Christ. When there on the night of his betrayal, in the upper room, where they are to celebrate the Passover feast together, his 12 disciples elbowing and jockeying with one another as to who would be greatest in the kingdom... are given a lesson in humility by the Savior. Verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Jesus took to himself the the role of a slave, of a household servant, the master lowered himself, condescended, humbled his heart to the place where he washed the dirty, stinking feet of his disciples, one of whom was actively involved in a plot to betray him. This is humility. This is love. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus invites those who will to come to him in faith. Verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. 
for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus displays humility. We want to know what humility is like. It is like the life of our Savior. What is humility? It is a bankruptcy of spirit that abandons all self-righteousness. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? The word poor in in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, it comes from the verb, which means to to crouch or to cower like a beggar, to, to turn aside and to just hold out your hand. In antiquity, when people had to beg for, for their sustenance, it, it so humiliated them that they had to confess that they had nothing, that they, had to, that they were dependent upon somebody else, that, that it was demonstrated there in the very act of begging, that, that rather than be bold and brazen and walk up to you and, hey, buddy, can you spare a dime? They would hide in the shadows and, and would couch and, and cower and just sort of stick out their hand and, and see if someone would be willing to give them anything. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. To be humbled in that way. We won't look there, but you can go to the account in Luke 16 of Lazarus and the rich man. And you can get an idea of what it was like to be a beggar in those days. The poor in spirit recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt. That we are utterly dependent upon God. We recognize that we have no righteousness of our own. We turn to God to supply that which we need. Humility is a sign of true religion. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, And to walk humbly with your God. Humility is hated in this world. It is hated in this world, but it is a requirement for entrance into the next. This world despises humility, but it is the requirement in order to enter the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 18. Verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? There they go again. And he called a child to himself and set him before them. And said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted... And become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And when we looked at this passage together in Matthew, remember, we we said that what, what Jesus is saying is that we must adopt the status of one who has no position in society. One who has nothing to commend themselves to others. It is a requirement for entrance into the kingdom of God that one humble themselves. That one humble themselves. 
Beloved, pride blinds people to their need for salvation. Humility helps us to understand that we desperately need a Savior. Further, the Bible says that humility is a prerequisite for honor. It is a prerequisite for honor. If you want to be honored, you must humble yourself. Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs 15. And verse 33. Fathers, teach this to your sons. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. And before honor comes humility. Before honor comes humility. Chapter 18, verse 12. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. But humility goes before honor. Honor. Chapter 22, verse 4. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Chapter 29, verse 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Fathers, teach your sons. Teach your sons that the way up is down. In God's economy, the way up is down. Humility precedes honor. Pride leads only to destruction. Only to destruction. Humility is the goal of our sanctification, according to the scriptures. Romans chapter 8. And verse 28. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. We have been predestined to be made like Jesus Christ. And God is at work in the lives of his children to turn everything to good so that they would become like Jesus Christ. Christ is a man of humility. He is the one who demonstrates the character, the godly character of humility. So what is the good that God is bringing of the difficulties and troubles in my life and yours? It is to humble me. It is to humble me. That's the good that God is promising you. He will make you like Christ. He will smash your pride. If you are a child of God and pride is incompatible with a son of the kingdom, 
then God is absolutely committed to smashing pride in your life and replacing it with humility. When we understand that, when we embrace that truth by faith, when we begin to to act out in accordance with that truth, it feels a little less like being smashed and a little more like being chiseled. But either way, God is going to chip it away. Some people say that uh, we shouldn't pray for humility. All right, someone says, I'm praying for humility, and, and someone else will say, oh, don't do that. Because if you pray for humility, then, uh, then you know, God is going to humble you, and, 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 and they kind of convey the idea that God is heartlessly going to, to somehow crush you. That's not true. Not true at all. God loves his children. God provides and cares for his children. Hebrews chapter 12 Let's put this uh, to rest here. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 10. Now we'll pick it up in verse 9. Now we'll pick it up in verse 7. No, we'll pick it up in verse 4. There we go. All right, verse 4. It's best to get a running start at these things, I think. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you, are in, that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God disciplines his children And one of the places he disciplines us is that we might put off pride and that we might grow in humility. We might grow in humility. One writer says, the humble man is he who acknowledges that he has no claim on God, but God has total claim on him. He has, realizes, he acknowledges he has no claim on God, but God has total claim on him. Said differently, God is sovereign, you are not. You are not. C.J. Mahaney in his excellent little book on humility says, Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. It's a gut check. It's a reality test. So our first question is, what is humility? Secondly, what are its benefits? What are the benefits 
of humility. First, humility places us in a position to receive the blessings of God. That is a cool thought. Humility places us in a position to receive the blessings of God. Listen to the word of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 2. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Wow. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. As Mahaney says in his book, humility draws the gaze of our sovereign God. The favorable gaze, I might add, of our sovereign God. Places us in a position to receive the blessings of God. Secondly, humility makes us truly great. There is, a, there is a legitimate desire within the, the human heart to be somebody, to be great. It becomes illegitimate when we pursue it in a way contrary to the plan and purpose of God. Matthew 23, verse 12, Jesus says, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Shall be exalted. J. Oswald Sanders has a wonderful book called Spiritual Leadership. And in that uh, book, in his section on humility, we find the following. Quote, on one occasion when Samuel Bringle, now Samuel Bringle was the the commissioner of the Salvation Army in the the, uh, late 1800s. On one occasion when Samuel uh, Bringle was introduced as, quote, the great Dr. Bringle, he noted later in his diary. Quote, if I appear great in their eyes, the Lord is most graciously helping me to see how absolutely nothing I am without him and helping me to keep little in my own eyes. He does use me, but I am so concerned that he uses me and that it is not of me the work is done. The axe cannot boast of the trees it has cut down. It could do nothing but for the woodsman. He made it. He sharpened it. And he used it. The moment he throws it aside, it becomes only old iron. Oh, that I may never lose sight of this. Here was a man who was rightly centered. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Oh, may we desire to be used of God mightily. But may we be kept from the thought that somehow God needs us to do his work. What are some of the other benefits of humility? It promotes peace. And unity in the church of Jesus Christ, Ephesians chapter 4. And verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You find a church that is peaceful, and you'll find a church in which humility is, is a, an honored virtue. You find a church that is, that is divisive and scrapping and can't get along, and you will find a church in which pride is entrenched in the leadership of the church and in its people. It is humility that promotes peace and unity. Humility advances the gospel. Philippians chapter 1. Paul is here in a Roman prison. Verse 12, he says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment and the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. That's amazing. He's saying, you know what? I'm in prison, and there are people out there that are gloating over that reality. They're saying, hey, the Apostle Paul, he's all washed up. You know, you need to listen to me, and, and I'm the true preacher of Christ, and so forth. And Paul says, you know what? As long as they preach the gospel, I can, I can rejoice in that. I don't care that they're trashing my reputation. It does not matter. What matters is that Christ is proclaimed. Even when the motives for proclaiming Christ are wrong, I can still rejoice in the proclamation. That's humility. That's humility. What is humility? What are its benefits? Third, how do we pursue it? We're convinced it's essential. How do we go about pursuing it? In the same way, we pursue every other aspect of the Christian life. By faith, in dependence upon the Spirit of God and the atoning work of Christ. We begin by preaching the gospel to ourselves. Pride cannot live in an atmosphere that has been deprived of all oxygen by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Preach the gospel to ourselves. One of my favorites, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, wrote in his book, Spiritual Depression, which, by the way, I commend to you, Spiritual Depression. He writes as following, quote, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Wow. Let me read it to you again. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? 
We need to counsel our wicked heart with the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it goes something like this. It begins with sovereignty. It begins with sovereignty. There is only one sovereign in the universe, and it is not me. It is God Almighty. He spoke this universe into existence. By the word of of the Lord, it came to be. And he owns it, and he has established it, and he has established the order and rules, both natural and moral, by which this universe operates. He is sovereign. And he created me. And he created me to love and serve him. In fact, he created the first human, Adam. And from Adam's side, he created a a life partner named Eve. And from the union of this man and woman come all of humanity. And it started out wonderful, and it started out good. And then Adam and Eve, for reasons we do not understand, chose to rebel against their sovereign creator and to seek in their own pride to be sovereign themselves, to determine for themselves what is good, what is right, what is true. And they disobeyed the one commandment that they had been given. In the day you take of the tree of, the, of this, uh, the fruit of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eat, you shall surely die. And they put forth their hand and took and ate. And they plunged themselves and all of their posterity into ruin. And the Bible calls it sin. Sin. Sin is a, is a lack of conformity to the character of God. It is an open rebellion and defiance against our creator. Sin affects every aspect of the creation. That Adam and Eve was ruined in sin, and we who descend from them are ruined as well. We are sinners by both nature and choice. Open in rebellion against God. The result of sin is suffering. Suffering. Human misery. A broken, bent, and twisted world. Catastrophe. Murder. Injustice. Inhumanity. All of the evils. The the desire to, to do those things that we know are wrong. And bring about intense suffering. Ourselves and others. Sin brings suffering. It brings the ultimate suffering in that when we die, we are separated from God eternally. Suffering in a place called the lake of fire. God would be perfectly just. Perfectly just to condemn each and every one of us. Forever to the lake of fire. But God has offered salvation. To those who will believe. He sent his son into the world. To bear in his body upon that tree the the penalty for the guilt of the transgressions of all his people for all time. The Son of Man, Christ the Savior, drank to the last drop the cup of the wrath of God for us. 
And if we will, by faith, give up on our own attempts at self-righteousness and throw ourselves in humility upon the mercy of God, we will be saved. Sovereignty, sin, suffering, salvation. And in the love of God, he doesn't leave us in this life of misery and say, Yes, it's rotten now, but don't worry. Someday you'll be with me. He says, no, I have broken the power of sin in your life even now. We call it sanctification. Sanctification. It brings glory to God. It pleases God for the people who he has saved to live by faith and to slowly begin to put off that old nature and to embrace the reality of who they now are in Christ. It gives God glory when we fight against pride and we begin to emulate Christ in a walk of humility. Sanctification. Sovereignty, sin, suffering, salvation, sanctification. God uses the difficulties in life to transform us and conform us and make us more like his son. Stop listening to yourself start speaking the truth to yourself when we preach the gospel to ourselves we begin to see reality as it truly is how do we pursue humility we pursue it by preaching the gospel to ourselves secondly we pursue humility by deliberately going lower than we think we deserve By deliberately going lower than we think we deserve. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. You younger men, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Listen, Peter never forgot what Jesus did in the upper room that night. What he is, Peter is saying here is, put on the, the apron of a slave. Clothe yourselves with humility, just like Jesus did that night when he washed our feet. Because God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus said, when you, when you, quoting the Proverbs, when you go into a banquet, do not sit right at the head table, sit in the place of of the lowest and let someone exalt you. Don't exalt yourself. Deliberately go lower than you think you deserve. Third. We pursue humility by yielding to the opinions and preferences of others. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. Yielding to the opinions and preferences of others. Oh, that is so hard. That is so hard. We cling to our opinions. We cling to our preferences. We can even find proof texts from the scriptures. To attach to our opinions and preferences and and somehow make them seem, at least to us, like the word of the Lord, right? Yield, Paul says. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, 
But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not, and the word merely in the New American Standard is italics because it's not there. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Do not look out for your own interests. Look out for the interests of others. Yield to others. Beloved, I can tell you that one of the most difficult things for the elders of this church as we sit and and meet together around the table is to be able to yield our opinion and preferences to one another. It is difficult. It is a challenge. If it is the word of the Lord, we must stand firm. But if it is our opinion only, if it is our preference only, then we must be willing to yield. And it takes a powerful work of the Spirit of God and a proud man's heart to be willing to yield. You can pray for your elders. You want to pray for us? Pray for our humility. Pray that we would humble our hearts before the Lord and each other. The church will be blessed for it. How do we pursue humility? Deliberately go lower than we think. Yield our opinions. Fourth, seek to serve others in unnoticed ways. Seek to serve others in unnoticed ways. John the Baptist, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. I must fade off the scene into the shadows. Stage left. We love to serve. And we love to get credit for serving. We like to be noticed in our serving. We like to be thanked. We like to be honored. We like people to, to, to come to us and, and say to us, wow, so wonderful what you did. Yeah, you're right. It's pretty wonderful. <laughs> I'm a pretty special kind of guy. No, we wouldn't say that. We're far too outwardly humble for such things. We only think those kind of thoughts. And how do we know whether we're thinking those kind of thoughts? Simply this. If we serve and it goes unnoticed, unthanked, and we find welling up within our bosom a a sense of, of, uh, you know, entitlement, a sense of, of anger, a sense of I'm not appreciated, then we know that our pride has been engaged. Our pride has been engaged. So seek to serve others in unnoticed ways. Fifth, I think, immediately transfer glory to God for all your successes. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, By the grace of God I am what I am. By the grace of God I am what I am. Recognize if God has used you, sure. But understand that like that axe in the hand of the woodsman, Right? The glory goes to the woodsman who swings the axe. It doesn't go to the axe. The axe doesn't boast about the trees that it's cut down. Transfer glory to God immediately. Six. Seek out advice and welcome correction. How do we pursue humility? Seek out advice, welcome correction. 
Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10, through presumption comes nothing but strife, but with those who receive counsel is wisdom. Proverbs 15, verse 12, a scoffer does not love one who reproves him. He will not go to the wise. Proverbs 25, verse 12, like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Listening ear. If you don't seek anyone's advice, if you keep counsel only with yourself, what you're saying is that that you are the repository of all wisdom and knowledge. You're a closed pocket. You don't need anybody else. Brothers, sisters, it's a manifestation of pride. It's a manifestation of pride. A humble person seeks out help. Andrew Murray, in his good book on humility, says, Look upon every person who tries and troubles you as a means of grace to humble you. That's preaching the gospel to yourself, by the way. That's not listening to yourself. That's speaking to yourself. Look upon every person who tries and troubles you as a means of grace to humble you. God has sent them into your life to humble you. It changes your perspective. Thank you, Mr. For saying that to me. You are God's gift to me. Thank you. Without muttering under your breath afterwards, right? How do we pursue humility? Pray, pray, read the word of God, meditate on the word of God, memorize the word of God. Psalm 119 verse 11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. I treasured it in my heart. Come to the Lord's table. Come to the Lord's table. Be reminded. As you hold in your hand the, the cracker and the, and the little cup of juice. And what they, what they remind us of. The gift of the Son of God for us. You can't help but humble us. You can't help but humble us. Beloved, our, our struggles against pride and the, and the pursuit of humility they're going to be with us until christ takes us home that's just the way it's going to be but genuine progress in humility is not only possible but is a reality for those who know the lord jesus christ he is he is committed to us, to, to making us like himself. We have been predestined to be like him. And so, so we are going to grow in humility if we're a child of God. It's not by our strength. It's not by our force of character. It's not by one sermon on humility and we go home and the switch flips and it's all cool after that. It's a hard, 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 constant struggle and fight. But there's real progress. There is real progress. And in that we can be encouraged.
and we can encourage one another. He who began a good work in you is faithful. He will complete what he has begun. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that you gave us your word in our heart language. That each and every one of us has access to the Holy Scriptures in the English language. And through your word, by your spirit, you work among us. You work in us. You save and you sanctify and transform your people. And our Father, we desire to be like Christ. So we sit here this morning hearing the word. It is our desire to to grow in humility, to battle our pride, to humble our hearts, to be like Jesus. And so our Father, will you answer our prayers? May you help us this day. Help us to embrace the difficulties of life and to see them as your good gift to us to help us to learn humility. May you help us to intentionally seek to go lower and not elevate ourselves, to yield to the preferences and opinions of others, to not exert our own legitimate expressions of power and influence, but to be willing to give them up. Now, Father, we pray for that person or persons here this morning who have yet to place saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we ask you to open their eyes to the truth. We ask you to humble their proud hearts, that they would, like a beggar, reach out to Christ to save them. Draw them to yourself, our Father. Open their eyes. Flood their hearts with grace. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.